If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians 2, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And the title of this sermon is The Christian's Biography. This is our story. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. While every scripture is God-breathed, inerrant, and infallible, and even vitally important for the believer, there are some texts that are kind of like mountain peaks in the middle of these vast ranges around them. This is one of those texts. It's a text that, in many ways, you could say, turned the world upside down in the 1500s. When Martin Luther read and really understood this text, it changed the course of history. What we'll see in this text is a sharp contrast between what a Christian was before salvation and what they are after. I read a story about a youth pastor who took a group of students hiking up Mount Whitney, which is the highest spot in the continental United States at 14,495 feet. Beautiful views where you could see everything around for miles. And one of the things that you can see from up there, actually only 80 miles to the southeast, is Death Valley, the lowest spot in the United States, at 280 feet below sea level, and the hottest place in the country, with a record 134 degrees in the shade. The bottom of the world to the top. That's what we have in the text before us. Our nature before Christ and our salvation in Christ. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our four points to guide us through these texts this morning are these. Number one, our nature, in verses 1 through 3. Point 2, God's nature, 
in verses 4 through 7. Point 3, God's gift in verses 8 and 9. And then point 4, our calling in verse 10. So point 1, our nature. Remember, as I said in the sermon title, this is the biography of every single Christian. We'll start in Death Valley. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This was our status. We were dead. Dead. I looked this up in the Greek, and do you know what this word means? Dead. It's abundantly clear, no matter what language you're in. Dead. A corpse. As John Piper once said, we were not just in the doghouse, but in the morgue. According to scripture, this is the spiritual state of every single human being who has ever walked the face of the earth other than Jesus. We were dead. Why? Well, back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 Verses 16 and 17 says this. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. You shall surely die. You know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they surely did die. While physically they didn't die on the spot, God was gracious to them in that way, but they both did eventually die. But there was a spiritual death that did take place on the spot. They sinned and they died spiritually. They cut themselves off from the source of life. God himself. The Bible tells us the truth that all of us inherit Adam's sin nature. That we're all stillborn. And because of that, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, because of our sin, all of us were, say it with me, dead. Understand this. There are three basic views of humanity. Well, sick, or dead. Well, sick, or dead. The first crew believes that we're doing pretty well. Just eat a good diet, live the right kind of life, hold the right kind of views, make sure you're on the right side of history, and you're doing pretty well for yourself. We're well. The second group isn't so optimistic about humanity, but they believe that we're just sick. Maybe even deathly sick, but alive nonetheless. Heart still pumping, still able to respond to stimulus of their own will. But the Bible is abundantly clear. We're not well or just sick. Before Christ, we were dead. Now, let me ask you, what do dead people do? Nothing. 
What are dead people capable of on their own? Nothing. This is Paul's point. Think about this from the well-known story of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. He's dead in the tomb. Brian Chapel uh, invites us to imagine that moment, being there with Lazarus outside the tomb. He says this. He says, None of us would have approached the one that was dead and said, Lazarus, you need to get up because Jesus is here to help you. Lazarus, come on now. He's really a wonderful savior. All you need to do is reach out to him and he will save you. Come on, Lazarus. If, if you will just take the first step, then he will do the rest. We would not have said any of those things because we knew that Lazarus was dead. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he responded. Do we say that this was because of any initiative or effort of Lazarus? No. Lazarus responded, but this was because Jesus gave him ears to hear, strength to move, breath to live, and the will to obey. Lazarus responded, but Jesus was responsible for the new life because Lazarus was dead. This is where Paul's trying to lead us. To understand that humanity, apart from Christ, isn't well and isn't just sick. We're dead because of our sin. Yes, we're physically alive, but spiritually dead as a doornail. Unable to make any move toward God on our own. We couldn't will ourselves to wake up and walk any more than Lazarus could. In my study this week, I found this wild story about a guy named Jeremy Bentham. Anyone know who Jeremy Bentham is? If you're unfamiliar with him, he's known as the father of utilitarianism or the greatest happiness principle. Well, apparently, when Bentham died in 1832, he donated a fortune to a London hospital, the University College of, of London, but with one condition, that his body be preserved and placed in attendance at the hospital's board meetings. So while this is a, go back to that other picture, while that's a wax head, that's actually Bentham's skeleton under that which has been preserved and even wired up so that it can stand and move around like a living Jeremy Bentham. So over the years, next picture, uh, this skeleton has been painstakingly moved into board meetings at the University College, where it's been humorously proclaimed, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. This is the reality of our human nature. We don't choose God. We can't. We aren't just sick. We're dead. We aren't just in the doghouse. We're in the morgue. We're present, but not voting. Paul drills down even more. We're not just dead in our nature. We're actually disobedient on top of that. Look at verses 2 and 3. So he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I'll stop right there. Do you see that? What a a stark description of humanity. Look at this language. He says, in which you once walked. Walked, scripturally, means this is your way of life. How did we walk? He says, one, you followed the course of this world. In other words, you were captive to the world's influences and the world's values. The world's way of thinking and living was yours. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. The course of this world, that's what shaped us. For Christ. Paul continues on. Point two, you followed the devil. You followed the world, but you also followed the devil, Satan. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 4 about Satan. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. While we know as Christians that Christ wins in the end and that Satan will be destroyed, we know that's true. While we know that, he's still alive and well. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Then he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The spiritual realm is real, brothers and sisters. We'll learn in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're in an all-out spiritual battle. Before Christ, we followed the world. And we followed Satan. We were uh, under his power. But we don't get to blame it all on the devil. We don't get to play the the devil made me do it card. We're completely sinful in and of ourselves. Our problem isn't just something out there. It's something in here, according to Scripture. Paul tells us that our third problem, uh, along with the world and the devil is the flesh. Look at verse 3 again. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Sinclair Ferguson has this to say about the word flesh. He says, It refers to the human condition, weakened and distorted by sin. It refers to the orientation of our whole being in a God-rejecting manner. The flesh is not an appendage to our existence. Rather, it is the atmosphere in which we live, 
the air that we breathe, in and out, and the fundamental alienated from God disposition of our inner being. The flesh is life turned in on itself without having the resources on which to live as we were intended. So, we were dead. We followed the world, the devil, and our fleshly desires. Not only in body, but in mind as well. So even our thoughts are corrupted. And to top it off, look what Paul says at the end of verse 3. And we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see that? Again, this is our nature. The Bible doesn't view human nature with rosy-colored sunglasses, does it? It's blunt. It tells us the truth. Our nature is rotten to the core. And because of this, we were children of wrath. This is a word that isn't talked about much, if at all today. Wrath. It's a word for anger that's poured out in punishment. And in the case of God, it's righteous anger poured out in deserved and just punishment. The specific word used for wrath here is the word orge. And orge comes from a root meaning to grow ripe for something and indicates God's gradually building and intensifying opposition to sin. James Boyce notes that God's wrath is consistent, controlled, and judicial. That is what makes it so frightening, he says. The doctrine of wrath does not mean that God merely gets angry from time to time, lashes out in anger, and then forgets about it. It is rather that his wrath is an inevitable and growing opposition to all that is opposed to his righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson powerfully asked the question, As Christians, we are comforted by the thought from Romans 8.32 that if God is for us, who can be against us? But what if the reverse is true? What if God is not for us? What if God is against us? Then it matters little who is for us. We are in eternal danger. He goes on to say that Wrath is the settled hostility of God's holy will towards everything that rebels against him. Like Boyce, he says, God does not fly off the handle as we do in a fit of rage. No, the terrible element in God's wrath is that besides being perfectly controlled, it is totally concentrated, absolutely just, completely holy. In other words, Paul is saying, by nature... We were children deserving God's punishment for sin. That we have offended a holy God by nature and by practice. And that same holy God is just. He can't allow sin to go unpunished. He can't do it. And therefore, he must pour out wrath upon sin. And don't forget, we were what? Dead. Unable to save ourselves. Uh, unable to make any move of reconciliation toward God on our own. 
That's the bad news. This, all of this, is a Christian's biography before Christ. Let's continue on. Point two, God's nature. Verses four through seven. The next two words in our text might be two of the sweetest words we could ever hear after all of that bad news. Amen. We've been to Death Valley, the lowest points in our story. We were dead, disobedient, deserving of wrath. But God. But God. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see the beauty in these words? But, but, it's a conjunction that that points back to something before it to show contrast. If, if verses 1 through 3 are Death Valley, we're about to scale Mount Whitney. But God is a beacon of hope after depths of despair. In contrast to our nature, is God's nature. Paul has told us the truth about us. And now, he's going to tell us the truth about God. What's God's nature? Number one, he tells us that God is rich in mercy. Thank God for this truth. As as a child of wrath by nature, there can't be any sweeter news. God is rich in mercy. So not only is he merciful, he's rich in mercy. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. And according to this text, what is it that we deserve? Wrath. God shows compassion and pity on us. God is merciful. Second, God is loving. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. This is mind-blowing stuff. God isn't merciful to us because we were lovely or because we responded positively. He was merciful to us and loved us, even when we were dead. Romans 5.8 says this. It says, but, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So God is merciful, and he's loving. Third, God is gracious. Paul tells us, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Grace is the unbelievable other side of the coin to mercy. If if mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Freely, as a gift, unearned by definition. We'll, We'll come back to this word later in the passage. So God is merciful. God is loving. He's gracious. And, fourth, 
God is kind. Look at verse 7. It says that so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's good and benevolent toward us. Now, I'll just stop and ask the question. If there was a God who was merciful, loving, gracious, and kind, would that be a God you'd want to follow and submit your life to? Yes. Not many of us would say, that sounds awful. Friends, this is the God of the Bible. Even while we rebel against him and try to steal glory away from him, this is his character toward us who believe. You can trust him. You can follow him. You can submit yourself to him. So, this is God's nature. As a sharp contrast to our nature. These are his character motives behind what he does. And I intentionally skipped over some key content. So we're going to go back, look again at verses 4 through 7. Again, but God. Notice who the subject is. God. After showing us man's nature and man's predicament, Paul doesn't lead with, but man. No. We already learned that that man is incapable of pulling himself out. He's unable to raise himself from the dead. But God. And what is it that God has done? Verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? We were dead. We were made alive. This is resurrection language. A a dead corpse like Lazarus is being made alive. How? Union with Christ. Check this out. These, These two verbs made us alive and raised us up. They have the the prefix sin or S-Y-N with them. This is where we get the word sync from or or synchronize. Peter O'Brien gives us a helpful example here. He says, we sync our phones with our computers in order to transfer the music on the computer to the phone. He says, well, we were synced with Christ. What God did for Christ He did the same for believers. Because of our union with Christ, think about this. If if we are synced with Christ because of our union with him, when he rose from the grave, we did too. We went from being dead to being alive by grace. Dry, dead bones, as Kyleen read earlier from Ezekiel 37. Dead, dry bones, made alive acted upon externally, given new life, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's union language, in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from who? From God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entering and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is how the Bible talks about salvation over and over and over again, from dead to alive, a new creation. And this is why all of the verbs in verses 1 through 3 are past tense. Praise God, right? The Christian's biography is that you were dead. Well, you're not anymore because you're in Christ. So, you're made alive. But we're still going up the mountain even more. You're also not just made alive, but you're also raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places. As we learned last week, being seated with Christ or seated in the heavenly places, it's about Jesus' ascension and his session. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, the place of glory and honor and power. In him, you're there too, spiritually. And this doesn't mean that you're divine. Jesus is the only one on the throne. I want to be clear about that. But it does mean that you have power and authority over the spiritual forces of this world. It does mean that you have power to overcome temptation. It does mean that in Christ, you, Christian, are raised up and seated with him from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. God's motive is his mercy, his love, his grace and kindness. And his means through and through is Christ. Every spiritual blessing we have is in him. So we've seen our nature. We've seen God's nature. Now third, let's see God's gift. God's gift, verses 8 and 9. Look with me. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is one of the verses that Martin Luther just couldn't get around. It it opened his eyes to how God's salvation worked. Because we were dead, our salvation must be all of grace. We couldn't do anything to merit or earn our salvation. It's by grace. And it's through faith. By grace and through faith or belief or trust in Christ. That's what the word faith means in Scripture. And to make sure that we don't head down the wrong road, he says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Salvation. God's grace. Even faith itself is a gift. It's not something we deserve. It's not our own doing. I can't be more clear than Paul is on this. 
It's all of God. That's what he's trying to get us to see. John Stott notes that we should never think of salvation as a transaction in which God provides grace and we provide faith. No, it's all grace. We were dead and had to be awakened to believe, Stott says. And the result of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation is what? That no one may boast, Paul says. Do you see that? Back to Lazarus. Think about Lazarus. Imagine him coming out of the tomb, grave clothes reeking, and saying, thanks for the help, Jesus. I'm glad we could partner together on that. You did your part, and I did mine. Sure, Jesus, you were the one who was primarily responsible, but I was pretty awesome back there too. Did you see me walk out of that grave? It's awesome. Wasn't my response great, Jesus? You got a good deal in me, Jesus. It's ridiculous. Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave? We don't have to speculate on that. He tells us. John 11, verse 4. Right before he raises Lazarus from the grave, he says this. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God gets all the glory from our salvation because he's sovereign over it from beginning to end. To suggest otherwise is to boast and to rob God of glory that's rightfully his. Even if we think we're just partially responsible for our salvation or earning it in a small way, how many of you want to get to heaven and say, sorry, God, I robbed you of just a little bit of your glory? We're not saved by our works. We're not saved because we were smart enough or good enough to respond to God. We were dead. God made us alive. Like Lazarus, he, he called us to come forth from the grave. And we responded to his call. Theologians talk about two kinds of calls scripturally. An outer call and an inner call. Outer call and an inner call. An outer call is just like it sounds. External. It's the call of the gospel to everyone. It's the call to repent and believe. Matthew 22, verse 14. Jesus says, For many are called, but few are chosen. There's an outer call. It goes out to everyone. But then, there's an inner call. The call of the Holy Spirit to hearts. Romans 8, 29 says this, it says, and those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wayne Grudem says that this calling is a kind of summons from the king of the universe 
And it has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. It is an act of God that guarantees a response. In other words, it's effective. It's irresistible. Whether it's the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7, who's raised from the dead, or Jairus' daughter, or Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, raised from the dead, or Lazarus in John 11. Every single time scripturally that Jesus summons, summons someone from the dead, what happens? They get up. You never see Jesus say, I tried really hard, but they just weren't willing. No. When Jesus calls you out of death and into life, you respond. And so I'll ask, if you're out there and you know deep in your heart that you're not a Christian, that you're still dead in your sins, a child of wrath by nature, is today the day for Jesus to call you forth? Respond to his gospel call in your heart. Follow him by grace through faith. Embrace eternal life this very moment. Scripture tells us exactly how to take hold of this life-giving promise. Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, says this. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or made right with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Is he calling you? If so, I would love to to talk with you and pray with you after the service today. Don't leave without coming and talking to me. Is he calling you? If you're here and you're already a Christian, I want to call you to respond to in three distinct ways. Number one, Christian, stand in humility. Stand in humility. I want you to see that that you had nothing to do with raising yourself from the dead. It was all of grace. So Christians, stand in humility. Two, stand in thankfulness. God has taken you from the morgue to life into a position of honor and power in Christ. What a gift. So stand in humility and stand in thankfulness. Third, walk in faithfulness. Walk in faithfulness. And this brings us to our fourth and last point. Walk in faithfulness. Our calling in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. Speaking to Christians, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See this, Christian. 
We are his workmanship. This is the, the word poema. It's where we get the word poem from. It's a word used to refer to any work of art, like a statue or a song, a painting or a poem. Is there any better masterpiece than bringing someone from death to life? You, Christian, are God's masterpiece. You're a work of art. You're his workmanship. And you're not made to be stored in the garage under a blanket. You're made to be displayed. God has saved you for good works. To walk in them. To display his glory. Notice the bookend here. What did Paul say at the beginning of this passage? He said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, what? In which you once walked. And what does he say here? We're created for good works, that we should walk in them. Walk, remember, means this is your way of life. This is the the fruit of your salvation. Your way of life is changed forever. Good works are not the root of salvation. They're not what causes salvation. But they are the fruit. Saved people are God's workmanship. Made to display his character and his nature to the world. So Christian, stand in humility. Stand in thankfulness. And walk in faithfulness. Isn't the gospel good? Let's pray.